Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we welcome you along to the programme, we start this morning by focusing on the Cork Circuit Criminal Court yesterday where John Hussey, a retired solicitor and a former councillor and former Fianna Fáil chair of Fomoy Urban District Council was jailed yesterday for five years for sexually assaulting a little eight-year-old girl on a sleepover at his home. Paul Byrne, Southern Correspondent with Virgin Media News, was at court yesterday and Paul joins me this morning. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Patricia. Now, Paul, this sexual assault happened uh, 20 uh, years ago. Uh, when did Hannah Beersford, when did she decide to report it to the Gardaí? Um, it happened in 2003. And shortly after that, um, her mum took Hannah, uh, went to the guards, went to her GP, went to a number of people to seek advice in what she should do. And they went to the guards. They didn't make an official complaint there and then, but they kind of put it on record that they made this allegation. And that's all it was at the time, an allegation. And the health board, the Southern Health Board at the time, were also notified. Now, nobody at that stage interviewed or spoke to Hannah in relation to it uh, because her mum said, look, she was only eight years of age and she said she felt she didn't want to put her through any... Um, ordeal of questioning at that particular time uh, that she was still just so young but uh, the guards and the health board were aware of it at that stage it was really only in 2017 that uh, Hannah made the official complaint to the guards in Formoy and um, one of the lead investigators there Detective Garda Mairead Morrissey has been working very very hard on the case ever since then now in 2020 um she made the official, sorry, the official statement was made. And I suppose at that stage, she started, once she put it on paper and she started talking to the guards and making those statements, I suppose you could say that she started to take control of her life again because she was in the horrors for so many years following what Hussey had done to her. In 2021, John Hussey was arrested and he which is his right, he remained silent throughout the questioning, but he did make a prepared statement, which he handed to Gardaí, and he denied all the uh, accusations at that stage in writing. And However, when the case came to trial in 2003, January of this year, he changed his tune. 
And when he was arraigned on one count of sexual assault, he stood up and he replied guilty. And I think, again, from there, that was another turning point, hopefully for Hannah, that what she had told people was now um, confirmed by the abuser who admitted he put his hands up in court in January 2003. Yeah, and and if if any good can come out of of him doing that, it meant, therefore, that Hannah didn't have to give evidence and wasn't cross-examined in court. That's right. And I mean, I've spoken to people like Mary Crilly in the Sexual Violence Centre over years, also to Sally Hanlon in Support After Crime. And, and they, as well as survivors, always say when someone puts their hands up, when they admit what they had done, it means so much. It's another turning point in their life. and They don't have to give that evidence, but it means so much that, you know, people will say Hannah had been telling people so for years what had happened to her. And when Hussey admitted what he had done, there, everybody in Fromoy, North Cork, where he was held in high esteem, where he was seen as a pillar of the community. But underneath it, we all know now that he was a sex offender and that, you know, here he has put his hands up and admitted to abusing a then eight-year-old child. And it also saved Hannah, of course, as you said, from going through the horrific um, prospect of giving intimate and horrific details yeah, of what happened yeah. at any stage during the trial. God help her, yeah, that would have been dreadful. And she was, uh, uh, and I know the judge called her out uh, for her bravery uh, yesterday, but she, she read out a really, really powerful victim <coughs> impact statement, which really outlined, Paul, the effect that this sexual assault had on Hannah and has had for the rest, you know, since it happened 20 years ago? At stages, survivors hand a victim impact statement into the court and they ask the guards to read it out or they might ask their barrister to read it out. Yesterday, Hannah Bearsford, now 28 years of age, took to the stand. And what a powerful lady she was. It took 15 minutes to read the four pages of what must have been a, a very, very time-consuming process to put this down on paper. But she put so much thought into it and it took her 15 minutes. Sometimes she really struggled to get through it yesterday and she she composed herself, but she was powerful. And I think I, I, you know I, I sent you the copy of the, 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 the victim statement, yeah. statement. Yeah. I'd love if you put it up on your website because I tell you why, Patricia. There are so many people listening to this this morning, people who have been abused over the years and have never had the confidence to speak out or reach out. But I think what Hannah did yesterday, she has been a breath of fresh air. And I think so many people will take comfort from from her statement and take comfort from the fact that she spoke out. And if they read her statement, I, I guarantee you, Patricia, one person listening to this, and there's probably, unfortunately, so many people listening to this who have been the, um, subjected to abuse. But I can almost guarantee if people read this um, victim impact statement that one person will speak out and report yeah, to the abuser. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I know for a fact it happens. It does happen. Yeah. But as you said, I'm sorry, Patricia, I went off track, I suppose. But she, she, the, the statement, she said, like, during the assault, she said her initial reaction was one of confusion. It was followed by fear. She was eight years of age and she'd never been treated so unkind or cruel by someone. She didn't understand what was happening. She knew what was wrong and she lay there in the bed um, of her friend 
Remember, she was on a sleepover at her friend's house because Hussey's daughter had celebrated her birthday and a number of their friends had stayed over. And she was one of three people in the bedroom that night when Hussey, basically, the other two girls who were in the bed alongside uh, Hannah had uh, dozed off. Hannah was awake, but she remembers hearing footsteps. And just seconds later, there was uh, Hussey crouched at the end of the bed um, and, and then that's one when the abuse began. Um, she said she lay there in fear. It seemed like ages. She closed her eyes. She opened her eyes. She didn't know what was happening. She wanted to run. She couldn't run. Uh, eventually, thankfully, he left the room. Uh, she spoke in the victim impact statement, you know, of just like, this is a man who should have had her best interest at heart, but he took total um, um, uh, what's the word? Total. Well, he violated. He, he completely he violated, violated her, her body. Yeah. Violated her body when he should have really had her best interest. He, yeah. took, he took advantage of her. That's the word. Sorry, he was taking advantage of her when he should have been minding her. She was eight years of age. Listen, at eight years of age, you're still just a baby, yeah. Patricia. Yeah, honestly, yeah. God, I mean, you know? even even for her to try and have the words to explain to her parents what had happened that's I was I was thinking about it when and and she did go when she went home obviously her parents knowing her so well knew there was something up and she was thankfully able to confide uh, in her parents but the very fact you know that she was on this uh, sleepover uh, and I think it was her first ever sleepover but the parents knew John Hussey and said uh, you know fine upstanding member of the community she'll be safe yeah, because they were very reluctant to leave Hannah out of their sight. You know, like eight years of age, you don't want her to go where somewhere that you'd be concerned. But they were family friends. There was a bond between both families and they trusted John Hussey to mind their baby. But what they didn't know was that he was abusing her while she lay in her bed in his house. And when Hannah, when, when Hussey left the bedroom that night, um, Hannah said to herself, you know, she could have got up and asked them to phone her mum and dad, but she didn't want to be seen to disturb them or make a fuss. She sat there, had breakfast the next morning at the table with uh, Hussey's daughter and the rest of her friends, and it's when she got home that she told um, dad, or her mum and dad, what Hussey had The poor little thing. And in court yesterday, Paul, how did John Hussey strike you? Well... I'm just going to go back briefly to the first day he arrived in court, which is in January. He arrived to be arraigned. And that day, he walked down Anglesey Street with a suitcase and a bag over his shoulder because he was he knew he was going to go into custody. And he he told them that he would surrender. He was on bail all the time, having been arrested and charged back in um, 2021. But he knew he was going to be going into jail. And he surrendered his bail in January 2003. But, you know, he arrived in court. He walked down Anglesey Street as if he was just like somebody, a tourist, walking down, looking around, admiring the scenery, not a care in the world, went into the courtroom. And he laughed and joked and saluted with many of his former colleagues who he would have um, worked with in the courts over the years. He was sitting there reading a book, legs, um, you know, one leg over another, nice and relaxed. You would obviously, honestly, think at stages that he was um, just somebody taking in what was going on in the court. 
others who didn't know him, you know, would, would think that. But he was an arrogant man, very arrogant. And again, the same yesterday, prior to sentencing, prior to the judge coming in to listen to the case, he sat there, um, you know, reading his book, sipping his water as if he was on a holiday. He just seemed, didn't seem to give a damn. But I will say at one stage, while Hannah Bearsford was reading her victim impact statement, he looked, he was looking straight across. She was to his right. She was less than two feet away. And how brave she was to sit there, read that victim impact statement. But I think uh, myself and Barry Roach of the Irish Times, we, we, we were on the same page. We think that he did start to slightly show some emotion. Maybe that is the fact it was coming home now to rule the rule, you know, it was coming home to rule now that he had been caught and, you know, banged to rights. His barrister um, said it was a one-off. It was a momentary lapse. Um, he was a stand upstanding member of the society. Of society. Um, he was 69 years of age. His marriage had broken up because of this. He was a carer for his mum who's got Alzheimer's. Uh, it was at the lesser end of the scale of the abuse, said his barrister. But the judge, if you're part of the one, was taking no prisoners yesterday. Judge Catherine Staines, she read between the lines, yes, you've got no previous convictions. Yes, it was a first-time offence, but you abused an eight-year-old child. She said the sentence should be one of nine years, taking into his guilty plea, taking into his past with no previous convictions. She jailed him for five years. And once he's released from custody, he is now on the sex offenders register for the rest of his life. Okay, all right. And the judge did uh, commend Hannah and and how, how, for her bravery and the fact that she waived her her anonymity. That's why we were able to talk about John Hussey today. That's right. And I think you know, naming him and shaming him in public has done has is another part of the healing process for yeah. Hannah. Yeah. Um, so that that's another important part. But again, Patricia, could I just say I think honestly. The, power, the victim impact statement just that was powerful and hopefully people will get to read it and hopefully maybe somebody who has been subjected to abuse will take some solace or some comfort from it well and uh, make, make that call today if you're in the North Park area and you're some because the guard who looked after this detective guard the Marie Morrissey she was such a wonderful person I only met her for the first time yesterday but you could see she was a caring person and, and justice will be served don't give up there is faith the justice system does work if you work with it. Well said, Paul. Thank you for that. Have a good day and thanks for joining us. That is uh, Paul Byrne of Virgin Media News and as Paul uh, mentioned, Mary Critty, who actually we spoke with uh, during the week on the programme. If you have been affected in any way by my chat with uh, Paul, the Cork Sexual Violence uh, Centre is available to you at 1800 496 496. That's 1800 496 496. You can reach out to Women's Aid on 1800 341 1-800-341-900 and the West Cork Women's Project their free phone helpline is 1-800-203-136 1-800-203-136 and for those in North Cork there's Yana 022-539-155-3915 Email Patricia now with your story or comment Cork today at c103.ie Can you talk to me? Cork
Cork Today on C103. Prominent East Cork County Councillor Liam Quaid last Friday announced his decision to leave the Green Party with immediate effect to discuss his reasons why the now independent councillor Liam Quaid uh, joins me. Good morning to you, Liam. Good morning, Patricia. Uh, and and uh, you're welcome to the programme. Now, I think many people will not be surprised to hear part <laughs> of your decision to do this is to do with the proposed closure of Onakara, the mental health facility that I've spoken with you on on many, many occasions and you've been a strong advocate for the retention of this particular mental health facility. But did you feel that the Green Party had let you down on this one? Well, I I feel the government in general um, has let the residents and the families down and um, I've been very deeply involved in this campaign now for nearly two years. Um, We've managed to have six Oireachtas committee meetings on the closure and there's actually one on the way in the coming weeks. And I think we've really shown through those committees, which are cross-party, so they're made up of government, um, you know, Oireachtas members and opposition, um, that the rationale for the closure is entirely flawed and that the decision is going to have far-reaching adverse consequences for a very vulnerable group of people. And that's not just the current residents. It's a, a cohort of people who, who require respite um, and, and long-stay placement in East Cork. So we have the, what I would say, morally absurd situation at the moment, um, of East Cork having its allocation of 24-hour staffed residential placements reduced from 20 to 3. So if you lived in, in North Cork at the moment and you had a severe and enduring mental health difficulty that required uh, residential placement, you would have access to Solasnua in Mallow, Koshala in Kanturk or Carrigabrick in Fermoy. And that adds up to 42 uh, placements, single room uh, en suite, but if you're from East Cork, your options will be long-stay wards in St. Stephen's or St. Finbar's Hospital or a high-support hostel in the city dislocated from your community. Um, so my, my decision to leave the Green Party on the back of that, um, I suppose I, I've just come up with so many um, closed doors. We, we, we've always had an, an open door from the media. We've had an open door from the Oireachtas committees, I think, because everybody really can see that this service closure is wrong. Um, and I've had particularly strong support from NASA Horrigan of the Green Party. Um, but that, unfortunately, hasn't been the case when trying to appeal to ministers for intervention. And I do very much credit the Green Party for having uh, really important achievements in government. I think they're working in a really adversarial environment. And it's very hard to imagine when you're outside of government, the pressure that, that's, uh, that, you know, that, that the parliamentary party are under. But I think there's been a theme uh, running through this government of just not listening to people who are suffering injustice, be they tenants facing homelessness due to the eviction ban, um, long, long um, healthcare workers with long COVID who are just left in limbo for the last two years with regard to their financial security, and a, a whole uh, cohort of people that have been excluded from redress from the modern baby scheme. And I, I think the Onakura um, residents and families also fall into that category. I, I think those residents and families have really been cruelly ignored by government okay. and by and the did agency. Y- you mentioned uh, Nessa Horrigan. Her suspension from the Green Party, did that play a role in your decision in any way? Well, I think it really made me consider um, the fact that, in my view, Nessa is of a calibre um, that she you know, is, is, is without doubt a very strong contender to be leader of the party. And I think she shows um, really admirable leadership on issues like, um, you, you know, the, the, the CETA agreement um, that the government are trying to push through and on the rights of um, 
of, of, of people facing homelessness. And I think she showed incredible um, hard work and diligence with, with, with no political rewards on this particular issue. And for her now, as, as somebody who I think should be leading the party really, to be so, um, you know, definitively sidelined for 15 months to be taken out uh, of her invaluable committee work, that definitely, I think, uh, crystallised my my, my, um, okay, my and, information. Uh, yeah, and while, while you've outlined, um, you know, some of the reasons why, was it still a tough decision to leave absolutely. the party? Yeah, Ab- Absolutely. I, I have very mixed feelings about it. Um, you know, I've met great people in the party over the years. I think it's, it's made up of a membership um, that have very strong values, people who are very principled and people who are really working towards um, a better society and working towards environmental justice. And it's been it's been an absolute privilege to work alongside people um, of such calibre as Alan O'Connor in Carrick Tool and the Cork City Greens as well in particular. They're the, the people in the party I probably have gotten to know uh, most along with Nessa Horrigan. And I, I do aim to maintain those relationships. How long have you been a member of the Green Party? Since, since 2018. Okay. okay. Um, and and I, I must say, it's not going to change my uh, position on, on um, policies. Like, actually, this week in the council, both myself and Alan were supporting each other in a discussion on the on the wit of footpaths um, that became quite contentious. Um, so the fact that I'm not in the party, is, you know, I, I'm still going to be pursuing um, the same policies and, okay. and the same and when, ideas. And when you, when you reflect on the Greens in uh, government... Do you think it was the right decision for them to go in to a coalition? You know, bearing in mind that they are the, the smallest party and may not have had the clout of the other two, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. But when you reflect, do you still think it was the right decision? Well, at the time um, when this was being debated, I very much took the position that they shouldn't go in. Um, I felt there was going to be too much of a compromise of core values. Um, I, I do appreciate since um, since I took that position, that they have um, achieved a significant amount in government. And I think it would have been very hard for the party not to go in, given the fact that the uh, the Green Agenda was very much emphasising the, the urgency of climate action, you know, the very narrow window of time that we had to act on that. Um, so I think they were in a very, very difficult position. But during the Programme for Government talks, um, NASA Horrigan has, she had tried very hard, particularly on housing, to get a, a, a different model of housing, and um, she was, you know, she she she, she didn't um, win that argument with the other two parties, unfortunately. But she argues that homelessness would be made worse by um, what had been agreed, um, and on that basis, she argued that we shouldn't go in at the time. And I think she has been proven right in that. And homelessness is now the key social issue of our time. And I think one of the one of the main concerns I would have is that there's many people um, who are getting alienated, I think, from the green agenda because they're not seeing their basic uh, needs being looked after. So yeah, it's very, if you're facing eviction, if you've got kids with you know special needs and you're having to change schools or you don't know where you're going to be living in six months, you, you can't engage with environmental issues. It's very difficult. It's very difficult and only time will tell if the lecturers will be kind or not to the Green uh, Party. Will you run next year then as an independent in the local elections? Is that your plan at the moment? Yes, 
Yes, that's, okay. that's my plan. All right, and just one uh, final while we have you on, just on a, on a different uh, topic, uh, Liam. What was your reaction to the EPA inspectors who found that the all water treatment plant didn't have suitable alarms installed? Is that a concern for local people? I mean, that plant serves more than 8,000 people. That's right. It's it's very concerning. So the, the report um, findings were published there in the last week and uh, they found, as you said, suitable alarms which would alert authorities to deteriorating water quality were not in place. Um, and any any uh, drop in water quality is a really serious matter because, you know, there can be ser- major health risks attached to that. They also found uh, a significant build-up of sludge in the storage area of the, of the plant where settled water channels were stained. And there was no, crucially, there was no shutdown mechanism in place for um, filtered water turbidity. Um, so that could enter the, the water supply and cause problems. Um, there's been an ongoing issue, actually, with too much iron in, in, the, um, in the supply of water there. And there's also been four instances uh, in 2018 um, of excessive herbicide um, and while they didn't find breaches of, of those in particular um, this time around, they are concerns that the monitoring systems are, are not necessarily up to scratch. So the EPA have issued 10 recommendations now, which include replacing monitors and installing alarms. And I've called on Irish Water to really set out very clearly um, how they're going to um, implement those recommendations as a matter of urgency and and give peace of mind to the 8,000 people um, affected. Okay. Um, I, I think it's important to say that they haven't, Irish Water haven't issued a boiled water notice and they they extend over the water quality um, as things stand, but they really need to get um, these, these systems in place. Yeah, people just need to know the peace of mind when they turn on the tap that everything is going to be okay. And if it's not, there will be an alert issued. Liam, listen, yeah. we leave it there. Thank <coughs> you for that. And uh, thanks for joining us on the programme and good Thank luck in the much, future. Patricia. Thanks for Thank joining us. Much. That is now Independent uh, Councillor for East Cork, Liam Quaid. Now, the West Cork mother of a teenager who sadly died by suicide has urged radio stations to play a song written in his memory by his young friend in the hope that it could help someone in crisis. Saoirse Brown uh, joins me to remember her son, Rian, and in just a moment we'll be chatting with Aidan Burke and we'll be playing uh, Aidan's song. But first, I just want to chat with uh, Saoirse. Uh, good morning to you, Saoirse. Hi. Um, you're, firstly, thank you for, for talking to us. As, as I know, Rian only died last year, so you're very brave and uh, your grief is just still so raw. Um, so I suppose start by telling me a little bit about Rian and, and how you would describe him. Um, how would I describe Rian? I suppose, well, he was my favourite son in the world. Uh, I always used to say that to him because I just had a son and daughter. Uh, Rian was a happy bubbly, young fella, just always happy, got out of bed smiling his whole life. I used to giggle in the morning with him. I used to like, geez, Rian, how'd you get out of bed every morning smiling? And um, he was just talented, so talented. Played loads of music, instruments. He was like really good at art. Just, he played, or he done jujitsu, he's soccer. He was in the youth club in Balneen Freuga. He was just a caring, just such a caring person. Like when you're around Rian, you couldn't help but feel good because that's the kind of energy he gave off. He brought the best out in everyone. And he was just just so happy and caring and so deep. He was just wise beyond his ears. 
Yeah, so, and yeah. and so um, so full of life, and and uh, so obviously when, when you're when you're listing all his talents and what he was in involved with, he certainly doesn't yeah. come across as somebody who you would describe as being introvert. He was the exact opposite. He was oh, he, he was, was extrovert. So but, so the suicide, Sirsha, came completely then out of the blue. Out of the blue, I don't know. Do you know teenagers are not just teenagers, but. I don't know. It just came out of nowhere. You'd never expect it. Like, you never, I never thought for once ever that Rian would do this. Do you know? Yeah, um, particularly the way you describe him. And I, I mean, I've spoken to people in the past who've, you know, also lost children to suicide and they'll talk about, oh, they were very quiet. They were always very introvert. I never really knew them. But you're painting yeah. a completely different picture of Rian. Yeah. Do you know, that was Rian. Like, Rian just did everything we'd swim there in the sea all summer the water be freezing but Rian would just jump in in <laughs> you you wouldn't have to and then you'd have to do it because you know what he made it all look so easy he made life so look so easy and obviously for you as a mother and as a family this you know Rian's death absolutely devastating but Saoirse have you also seen the ripple effect of his death on the wider community I have like you know it's just impacted all of us and even just like the surrounding areas, the Manway, Bandon, Ballonine, like he was known everywhere. And I just like for me, I just, you know, as a mother, you could never feel angry towards him or anything. I just don't know how his friends can cope with this, you know, and I think with Aiden's song, it's there. just something in it that we can use with them and other young people to be able to kind of, understand maybe like what it is to them you know it's like it's just so final and unfortunately this isn't like okay years gone by this is lifelong for them and for all of us it's a huge traumatic grief it's so complicated it impacts impacts everyone so differently so each and every one that's really like linked to Rian or new Rian or even if it was only in school or in passing, down the park, whatever. You know, there's so many people out there going, God, what, how has this happened? And how is that going to impact them <clears throat> going on in their lives? And I think that's what this song can do is just like, OK, we can listen to it. We can have a conversation with people, with the young people. We don't know what to say to them. And throw on the song listen to it with your young people and I know teenagers grump at their parents and they don't <laughs> want to talk and whatever but maybe you could be the cool parent that throws on a little rap song and be like hey you know it's such a sensitive topic but music is healing M- music is a tool yeah, and, and, that's, yeah, and that's what you, your, your real message uh, Saoirse is around talking about suicide and, and listening to each other well, yeah, and I know that's a sensitive thing to say. Like, I've done the assist training course, which I've done that a couple of years ago, and it's like you don't be afraid to say to somebody, are you suicidal? But, you know, it's very personal as well, and that's a hard thing to say, you know, and it's up to each and everyone to learn how do they feel comfortable about this topic or, do you know what I mean? So it's like you do have to learn a language around how to talk about suicide grief or if somebody's suicidal, how can you help or how can you help yourself? And it's so, it's such a taboo subject, isn't it? You yeah, know, like yeah. um, no one knows what to do. 
you yeah. know. And, and we, that's why we do need to, to talk more about it. When, when did you hear about the song? Um, oh God, I don't, I don't uh, even know what day of the week. I, you know, uh, <laughs> I know Aidan had let me know that he was probably when he started it or even... I think even the night of the balloons, Aidan, did you mention something? Let, let me that. bring Aidan in. Aidan's on the yeah, other line. Aidan Burke, who, who I know. Uh, morning, Aidan. I know you're better, morning. Known, you're better known as Burkey. So you, That's right. Yeah, yeah, so we'll call you Burkey. Um, tell me about how you came up with the idea for this song. Well, what happened was, was um, you know, uh, two days after the funeral, um, the whole town went up to Town Park and we let off healing balloons, you know, just as a memorial kind of thing. But they had a speaker there, and um, they had a speaker to play Reen favorite song, which was uh, Ophelia's by the Luminers. But um, a friend of mine called me over, and he just put on the instrumental to a, an old rap song I used to like, uh, Big Pop by Biggie Smalls. And um, I just started doing it live there and then. Then for like, you know, 10 minutes, everyone was happy again. So then I suppose a week later, I said, I'm going to start doing music now full time. And then you came up with this song called uh, "We Ain't We Ain't Mad at You," and the backing vocalist, yeah, uh, Berkey, is um, incredible. Yeah, she's ND from Cork, Nicole Desmond. Where did you record it? M Five Sound Studios in Cork. You've done a great job, and we are going to play it in in a moment. Right. And and you, of course, you were you were Rian's friend. How would you describe Rian? What kind of a friend was he, uh, Berkey? Well, he was he was a bit of a rogue, you know. Like he was always up for a good laugh. And that's how you'll remember him best. Yeah. And then I was reading, what's this um, organisation, Healing to the Max? They want to use your track. Yeah, that's right. They're, um, they're a suicide prevention group out in Canada. Yeah. And they're trying to go international, worldwide, uh, going on tour to different schools across the globe with their uh, presentation programme. And they want to use my song as a theme song. Isn't that fantastic? I know, yeah. And uh, Saoirse, you want people to listen to this song and to discuss the message. That's, that's... <coughs> Well, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend that. I think, um, like the fact, so i done um, a 12-week course on Zoom with the Healing to the Max.org, that Canadian organisation. Okay. And um, it's specifically for suicide grief, and um, they they their own the organisation got set up because their own son Max died by suicide, and then um, they set up this group. So the fact like it's very it's a, it's an amazing they're an amazing group of people, and the fact that they are going to use this in schools and stuff it just shows how powerful that this song is. It is and, bri- like I would. Have Recommend go on to their website, donate. Healing <laughs> And and Berkey, people yeah. can, I, I'm assuming people can get your, your song on Spotify and. Yeah, it's up on all platforms. Uh, all platforms. On Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud. Apple Music, you know, all the rest of it, guys. OK, we ain't yeah. mad at you. We're going to play it. Um, uh, Berkey, we wish you luck with it and, and well done. It's uh, fantastic uh, what you've done. And uh, Saoirse, I love the fact that I'm playing it here on C103 because I, I'm told that Rian, Rian's favourite radio station was C103. Yes, Rian's favourite station was C103. <laughs> so in the morning, he'd get the bus 
from Innesteen into Brogan's and the bus driver always had C103 on. Uh, and Rian, my God, Rian loved maybe, like he loved loads of different music. And Aidan, did you hear that he loved NWA and Tupac? I don't know if Aidan's heard that yet. Yeah, uh, he had I, I on heard CD. that too yesterday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah it's um, so Rian would text me, then he'd get onto the bus and he'd... Uh, Snapchat me, whatever, maybe some 80s song or whatever. So yeah, it was being played. Isn't that brilliant? Um, Isn't that brilliant? And that was thanks to his bus driver. So it's saying. it's great for us, therefore, now on C103 for Rian to be able to play Berkeley's <coughs> song, uh, We Ain't Mad yeah. at You. Sirsha and really Aidan, special. I really appreciate you taking time out to talk to us today. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks right, very thank much so for bye having bye. us on. Once upon a time, not too long ago Back when everyone was happy and could live life slow Everything just took a turn for the worse I couldn't comprehend seeing my friend in a hearse And if you're wondering what happened, I am as well Cause everything just blackened, so now I just dwell Always the ones that you least expect They think their life's too hectic And the only antiseptic is to take their own life And it just ain't right, don't disrespect it And please don't ever neglect it Cause you never really know how much deep inside they suffer Mama always said don't judge a book by its cover I lost my friend to a suicide I wish he never died When the news broke a whole town cried It took some strength to make it The pain I'll never shake it Time makes you stronger so you know that we ain't mad at ya get like this once brothers and sisters of the same kind all harmless but young nurses at the same time now since you left us all i can hear is the death is because you bless us so won't cry because you're gone and still smile thinking about how we got along and just focus on that message in this very song but now it's one too many peers in the cemetery is years destined to grieve and that's what i'm seeing through these tears in my eyes can't stand to see you pass me by I had so much to say rather than a plain goodbye Too close to me and many others We put that on our mothers Can't stand to see another friend in the earth now That really hurt now But Lord knows we're just so alert now So we ain't mad at you We never got to say goodbye So we ain't mad at you Tupac said Through every dark night There's a bright day after that So no matter how hard it gets Stick your chest out Keep your head up And handle it We miss you boy We love you Rest in peace We never got to say 
That really is gorgeous. That is uh, Berkey. We ain't mad at you with the backing vocalist uh, Nicole Desmond. It really is lovely. We uh, wish them uh, luck with it. And uh, once again, my thanks to Searsha, very brave mum, for speaking to us. And if you've been affected in any way by my interview with Searsha, uh, please contact the Samaritans at 116-123-116-123. Cork today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie some of your commentary coming into the programme uh, today. A lot of people uh, by the way acknowledging um, uh, Hannah Beersford and how brave she was to waver her uh, anonymity yesterday at that uh, court case at the Cork Circuit Criminal Court where John Hussey was sentenced to five years for sexually assaulting her when she was only uh, eight. A lot of people saying well done to Hannah and somebody said she comes from a beautiful family. John Hussey says somebody else can now hang his head in uh, shame. And also reaction to my chat with uh, Saoirse Brown talking about her beautiful uh, young son, Rian, who sadly took his life uh, last November. And uh, his friend Berkey writing that great song, We Ain't Mad At You. Hi, Patricia. Great song. Lovely words. Beautifully sung by Berkey and Nicole Desmond. Nicole Desmond is a fabulous singer. She's the backing vocalist. Beautiful, beautiful singer. Um, Rian sounded like a great guy and uh, sounded like he was the heart and soul of the party, like so many uh, people we know whatever trick triggers them then to do what they do we'll never know says uh, Jim yeah and that's where families are left and I thought Saoirse spoke very well about the ripple effect out through the community you know and Aidan as his friend talked about the effect it had on him but you know suicide has such a devastating effect on so so uh, many people and Brian has said uh, Saoirse sounds like such a great mother who's thinking of the well-being of his friends and others more so even than himself I applaud her. Uh, Berkey has done a great thing with that lovely song. I don't usually like rap says Brian but I do like the song. Well done to him and to Nicole Desmond and May Rian uh, rest in peace. So thank you that's just some of your calls and texts uh, coming in uh, today and seeing as we were talking about Rian and what a great young lad uh, he, he, he was let me give a shout out to another group of young people who are doing a great thing this morning I've been asked to mention the third year students of the presentation school in Bandon they're not in the classroom today they're actually in the local graveyard they're doing a clean up of the local graveyard and somebody contacted us about an hour ago to say it's a wet morning <laughs> in Bandon this morning and yet they're all out there doing the clean up of the graveyard so well done to them, the third year students of the presentation school in Bandon, 0818 103 103. Here's a word of warning if you're going along for your NCT uh, test. Liam has contacted us, he's living in the West Limerick area and his daughter went to the Abbey Field NCT Centre to have her test done on her car. Now, unfortunately, on the day in question, it failed due to a bulb in the headlight. And what can often happen is you can be travelling to the NCT and you can just be unlucky and the bulb can suddenly go because I'm I'm assuming Liam's daughter didn't turn up knowing that the bulb was gone in the headlight. Anyway, 
attention was drawn, you failed your NCT, you need to get it uh, sorted. So off Liam's daughter went, I imagine it immediately, got it sorted, got the new bulb that was needed for the headlight and she went back in to be told it's going to cost you €35 Euro, and you're going to have to book a retest. She asked why and she was told is because it has to go back up on the ramp to check that the headlight is uh, working. And one mechanic at the NCT centre in Abbeyfield explained to Liam's daughter that this is now a new system. Liam feels it's all wrong at the end of the day. It was just a bulb. Yeah, you see, you would, you, I, and I'm assuming when the mechanic says it's now the new way of doing it before, that was just a visual inspection. Of course, we know if anybody fails an NCT on a visual, you're allowed to go away, get it sorted out, bring it back, and a mechanic will just visually check that you did what needed to be done and then you'll be given your certificate. Now, I don't know when that changed, but according to the mechanic, it's the new system for a bulb. It has to go back up on the ramp and therefore any time if you fail an NCT and you're coming back for a retest, if it has to go back up on the ramp, there has to be a charge. And I think people can understand that because it's going to take up the mechanic's time, uh, etc. But why they would do it for a simple failure like a bulb, I don't know. We'll see if we can find out because my gut instinct would tell me that if they've changed the ruling for that, they possibly have changed the ruling for other things as well. That previously it was only a visual expe- inspection that you didn't have to pay. And I know that would prompt people to think and we it, we would often hear people say when it comes to the national car test, oh, it's all just a money making racket. And when you see something like that and hear something like that, that's really, really annoying. Thank you for that, Liam. And let's just alert other people that that is going on for fear that you do fail on a bulb. You're going to have to pay for a retest. And John Paul tells me he's had some calls in about the Dursey Island cable car and I know on and off. Uh, since it's been closed down while the work is going on we keep getting calls in saying when is it it going to reopen when is the Dursey cable car going to be back up and running well we got on to Cork County Council this morning and they've issued us with the following statement now again they do the background and they tell us that Cork County Council commissioned essential repairs to the island and main tower infrastructure of Dursey cable car and they commissioned the work in May of last year 2022 and the final stages of these works are delayed unfortunately and that was due to adverse weather conditions in February and in March and indeed adverse weather at the start of this month. We really haven't had a great spring so far. Anyway, they say the works programme involved the deconstruction of the damaged infrastructure and the design, fabrication and the installation of the new tower structures on the existing site. The exposed location of the cable car added to the complexity of the contract and it affected delivery as some aspects were subject to suitable weather conditions. So they're waiting for, you know, a good spell of weather and a window of opportunity to get in to get the work done. The core aspects of the contract, though, this is the good news, they are in place and outstanding works, which is to install and tension track ropes and then attach the cable car as we speak, they're in progress. The structure then will be subject, obviously, to rigorous testing and there'll have to be an inspection once it's completed. That's to ensure that it's functioning as commissioned. The cable card service will resume once this testing has concluded and following the necessary granting of consent by the Commission of Railways Regulation to operate the cable car. So it does sound like they're getting very close to it, but there has been delays and there has been delays uh, due to the weather. 0818 103 103. John Paul's taking your calls. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862 103 103. C103 Jobs. 
And we start with a full-time healthcare assistant with FETAC or QQI Level 5 in care of the elderly is wanted from Maria Goretti Nursing Homes. Now that nursing home is based in Kilmallock. CVs please to admin at mgnh.ie. A full-time legal secretary is required for Fitzmaurice Ludlow solicitors. They're based in Dunmanway. CVs please to john.collins at fitzludlow.com. A range of community employment positions are available in the Fremont, Churchtown, Dramina, Tullylease, Milford and Liscarroll areas. If you're interested in finding out more, email Evelyn O'Keefe at deal, D-E-E-L, deal Valley. .ie. And a bar person is wanted for Mallow Town to work between 15 and 20 hours per week. CVs please to wmsheansmallow at gmail.com. You'll find all the details of the jobs we've just announced and more job opportunities. If you pop online now, just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. The Irish Sun has announced a new Irish true crime podcast called The Kinnahans, which will tell the 40-year-old story of Ireland's most feared crime family. To discuss the podcast, I'm joined by Stephen Breen, who is crime editor of The Irish Sun. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning. And you're very welcome. Now, as, as we say when we're, when we're talking about mafia families, did the Kinnahans mm-hmm. start out as small-time criminals? Yes, well, the Kinnahan organisation originates from the, the father of Daniel Kinnahan and Christopher Kinnahan Jr. That's Christy Kinnahan Sr. Christy Kinnahan uh, was born in the UK but grew up in Oliver Bond in Dublin. Um, born in 1957 but in, in his uh, younger years he didn't show much interest in school and, and got involved then as he got older was doing a bit of uh, taxi driving but then got involved in petty crime and check fraud but it was only as he grew a bit older in the 1980s he saw the profits that were being made by the heroin epidemic that was happening across the country he could see from meeting different contexts in, in the north inner city area of dublin the south inner city huge profits being made by the these various uh, drug dealers especially involved in heroin so in 1986 he got involved in the heroin trade but ultimately his first foray into the heroin market ended in failure because he was arrested by the Gardaí and he then was given a six-year sentence after that after he was caught with over 600,000 uh, £600, uh, pounds at that time worth of heroin so that was his introduction to the drug trade but during his time in prison he used it quite well to learn four different languages and he also made a commitment to himself that he, he wouldn't want to spend uh, much time in prison again and then when he was released in prison in the early 90s he travelled to Europe he travelled to Spain, he travelled to Holland and he, that's where he cultivated contacts himself and he cut out the middleman and went directly to the source of drugs in, in southern Spain and also in Holland. So that was the start of him building up this huge criminal empire. And and, and almost running it like a business and then bringing the, his children into the, into the business. 
Yeah, it was a business um, to him because then obviously he was concerned about, you know, the ongoing uh, attention of the Gardaí in relation to his uh, activities. So that's why he, he relocated uh, to southern Spain in 1999, uh, 2000. But, you know, he saw for himself, uh, he was a very shrewd individual, Christy Kinahan, and wanted to, you know, only dealing with people he could trust. And obviously, you know, uh, he had his two sons, uh, Daniel and uh, Christopher Jr. So he, he brought them into his organization as well. They got to see it firsthand. They also relocated to Spain themselves. They got to see firsthand his business model, his interactions with other um, major players on the international drug scene. And it wasn't long uh, before the two of the uh, individuals, his two sons, were uh, really immersed in, in his criminal empire. I know in 2008, when the Spanish investigation uh, launched into the Kinahan crime gang, they were known as the Irish Mafia to the Spanish because... The Spanish were concerned about the, the, the growing level of violence in southern Spain and the, the Kinahan group's access to firearms and also to drug distribution. So the, the Spanish launched a surveillance operation and, and they classed Daniel Kinahan as the de facto leader well, of the well, organisation. But do, but do they constantly live looking over their shoulder? I mean, what kind of lives do they live? Well, obviously, in southern Spain, um, they, they were leading uh, normal lives. They established a boxing gym in 2012, but they were still very involved in, in organised in crime. Things were going quite well for the organisation, and it was only at that in, in 2014 when things started to go wrong, namely because Gary Hutch, who had been a very uh, close friend of Daniel Kinahan, even the Spanish identified him as being second in command to Daniel Kinahan, and we know that Gary Hutch comes from criminal royalty in Dublin, where you have the, his uncle Jerry the Monk Hutch. So he was a part of the inner circle as well. But Gary Hutch got greedy. Gary Hutch got concerned about money that he had invested in the uh, cartel money laundering operations wasn't coming back to him. So he initiated this uh, effort to try and kill Daniel Kenahan in 2014. That failed when an innocent boxer was shot. And afterwards, there was a, a series of meetings between the Kenahans and the Hutches. Compensation was paid, but there was meant to be a peace agreement in place and Gary Hutch was allowed to return to Spain. But that decision would cost him his life in 2015. And, and therefore, that's when the Kenahan and Hutch feud was born. And still remains in place. How close did Daniel Kinahan come to being killed at the Regency Hotel? Well, he was very close. I mean, that day at the Regency, there were no uh, guards. The, the guard, he would admit that there was perhaps a failure in intelligence. Daniel Kinahan was there that day. Uh, he obviously had a, a bodyguards with him, a security team as well. But when that Hutch hit team stormed into the Regency and when uh, guns were produced and shots were fired, he, he made a very fast escape out, out the back door. And he was very lucky to be alive. Obviously, he was the, the target of that um, attack. Uh, David Byrne was a, a Kinahan cartel foot soldier and he was murdered that day but Daniel Kinahan was very lucky. That's twice he has escaped uh, the, the attentions of a hitman when in, in 2014 he was lucky to survive that and then again in 2016. So he, he, there have been two occasions where he's been very lucky to escape with his life. And where is he currently living? 
at the moment, uh, I interviewed the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau in January, and their uh, assessment is that he's still in the Middle East. Uh, I know there was a report out recently that he could be in Iran, but their belief is that you know he is still uh, within uh, the United Arab Emirates. He has also links to Pakistan and indeed to Oman, so he could he could travel to those countries as well. But he's seen as toxic now, and the whole organisation is because of the fact that the American government have now placed a five million dollar reward for information leading to their arrest. So he is someone who obviously is known to have lived a lavish lifestyle, uh, has enjoyed, you know, the the spoils of the criminal enterprises he's been involved in, but is someone who is now worried about uh, members of other criminal gangs targeting him, but also now the US government are involved. So they will all be looking over their shoulders. Yeah, with a bounty on his head. And of course, there's been so much attention uh, on the Regency Hotel murder with the court case uh, this week. I'm interested, do you think the judges got it right with Jerry Hodge? I don't think anyone was surprised, uh, Patricia. I I think that the evidence that was available to the court, they were left with no other option but to acquit uh, Jerry Hutch. I'm just surprised that he wasn't charged with uh, possession of firearms at the start because the special criminal court did rule this week that he did have control of those Kalashnikov assault rifles. Uh, he also could have been charged with participation in an organised crime gang or directing an organised crime gang, but they chose to uh, charge him with murder. And that decision was made even before Jonathan Dowdall came on board and offered to provide uh, evidence to the prosecution case or his his testimony. So they made that decision even before Dowdall came on board. And that was a very specific um, prosecution case where they alleged that Jerry Hutch was one of the gunmen who shot dead uh, David Byrne. So it, it, it's no surprise, I think, that the, he did uh, walk free and because people just couldn't see the evidence that was available. Mm. Do you expect him to leave the country? I know he was pictured, he shaved the beard, cut his hair uh, the other day, but do you expect him to leave Ireland quickly? Well, you just don't know. But with Jerry Hutch, he's an enigma where you have him walking out of the court and there's these extraordinary scenes and getting into a taxi. You know, there was no one there to pick him up. Uh, there was no one there to whisk him away on the back of a motorbike like other uh, individuals have done when they've been cleared. And it was a, such a high-profile case as well. He has links to Spain. He will also know that the Kinnahans tried to kill him in Lanzarote in December 2015. So he's another individual who will be looking over his shoulders. But he, he's out and about in Dublin. He called to his relatives' homes afterwards. He, he's been seen publicly uh, on a few occasions, you know, going to a takeaway. So... He's not showing any uh, concerns or fear at the moment, but because he has links to Holland and Spain, it's, it's feasible that he, he will leave Ireland because he'd also be concerned about you know, the ongoing guard investigations into the Hutch organised crime group. So uh, his, his options are limited, but he could stay here for the meantime and then head somewhere else. You mentioned Jonathan Dowdle. What will life now be like for him when he gets out of prison? Well, Jonathan Dowdle, yeah, he's he's four-year prison sentence. It's the second prison sentence he's received. So... He's now awaiting an application to be confirmed in terms of the witness protection programme. Only he can answer why he decided to to come forward and and testify against Jerry Hutch. Even during the trial, we know that Gardaí investigated a few incidents of intimidation directed against members of his extended family. But his life will, will never be the same again and he will always be under threat like anyone who's involved in organised crime and they decide to turn against their, their former associates, it will be upheaval, it will be a concern, he won't be able to lead another life. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. 
But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Certainly in, in, in Ireland. So the options for him will be probably to move uh, overseas or to another location where uh, the witness protection program deem that he is safe because there's no question that he will be under threat because of the nature of the criminality that he was involved in. And the witness protection programme, it isn't the romantic notion we see in, in movies. It's, it's seemingly quite a tough existence. It, it's a tough life. You know, I, I spoke to an individual who was in it uh, before and tried to uh, come forward um, with information. The court case didn't work out. But on, on that occasion, you have an individual who has to leave his family, his kids behind, his extended family, has very little contact uh, with uh, family members or friends basically are uprooting your whole life can't lead a normal job has to settle into different areas constantly as well looking over your shoulder we know that Joey O'Callaghan is, is a very uh, famous uh, individual who decided to come forward and help convict two killers and he's spoken about the isolation about the loneliness and, and about how sometimes he feels abandoned by the states because once you're in this program you know they don't really care about you and he, he's someone that has um, spoke about how delighted he was to come forward but and help put away two uh, very dangerous individuals. But uh, he just has concerns about the lifestyle that you lead and always constantly looking over your shoulder. Every time you go to the shop for a pint of milk or, or go to the garage, you're always looking over your shoulder and, and worried if someone's going to come and track you down. Yeah, no, no way to live. Will we ever see an end to the Kinahan cartel, Stephen? I, I think so, Patricia. I th- I think there's an impetus now from the state. I think since 2016, you have the Garda National Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau um, increasing their level of international cooperation with their law enforcement partners across the globe. We have a liaison officer now being posted as we speak to the Middle East to help coordinate investigations into the Kinahan organisation. We have the Garda now have an outreach officer in Colombia and also in uh, in Washington where they're, they're trying to coordinate international and transnational investigations into dismantling this, this guy. And a lot of their key figures are, are now behind bars, over 70 members of the organisation, but the top tier of that organisation still remain free and the investigations are ongoing and they're active and they're hoping to bring charges against uh, the senior figures in that organisation. So once that happens, then you, you will see the end of that criminal organisation. But then someone else will probably just step in and fill the vacuum. OK, really looking forward to the podcast. It's the Kinahans. You can get a podcast. You can get it on uh, Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, Stephen, I've enjoyed our chat. Thank you for that and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Thank you.
And that podcast, The Kinahans, a new true crime podcast from The Sun, is available from today with one episode released uh, weekly. It is going to be a gripping, gripping uh, uh, listen. 0818 103 103. Now, primary school choirs are at Cork City Hall today. They're taking part in the Cork International Choral Festival. It's the national competition for schools and it's the Section 1, the primary school school uh, choirs. Now our news reporter Mairead Tuig dropped in and met some of the pupils including two fifth class students um, Elva and Claire who are both pupils at St Vincent's Convent Primary School in Shandon. I like it, I like the stage as well. And what songs are you performing? Um, Whispered by Greg Gilpin and Slawn Away. And what's practice been like all along? Um, it's been like fun and exciting. And how long have you been practicing? Um, we started practicing the choir in September, I think, November, and we've done the performance in the cathedral. So we've been practicing for quite a while. Brilliant! And you're excited now for today. Yeah. And what's it like to get out of the classroom? Um, it's fun. <laughs> Claire, what class are you in? Um, I'm in fifth class. And you're in St Vincent's as yeah. well. And tell me, the choir, is it just all fifth class or is there a mix of years? Um, no, it's just all fifth class. So like in our school, it's like every fifth class we get a chance to be in the choir. Um, yeah. And what's it like taking part to the choral festival? It's very exciting um, for our school and it's a great opportunity to kind of get, like, to, get to sing and stuff. I see there's other schools here as well, so do you get to all kind of meet each other? And... Um, yeah, I think so. Brilliant. And tell me, what are you going to get up to today? Are you going to be on the stage? Yeah, we're going to be on the stage, and then we're going back to school, and they have a little party for us. Oh, that's really nice. So will there, is it a competition today? Is yeah. Excellent. So will you know the results before you go back to school? Yeah. Excellent. There's judges and everything coming. And what does it mean to you to be able to take part in a competition like this in Cork? I feel like it's a great opportunity because I can say that I took part. I, I, I performed in the City Hall, which is a big thing to say. Oh, they gorgeous, two gorgeous little girls from St Vincent's Convent Primary School from Shandon and I thought it was lovely thanks to Mairead uh, for popping along to City Hall today hearing the other choirs perform in the background there's something lovely isn't there about a school uh, choir and I remember myself being uh, Sister Nula who is uh, I think she's still in the Retta Convent in Fomoy was our uh, choral mistress and uh, we took part in many competitions and it was always such great fun it's very much part of growing up uh, and my childhood memories was being involved in school choirs but I think there's something lovely about listening to a school choir so good luck to everybody uh, particularly all the Cork schools who are taking part in the Cork International Choral Festival it's the primary school choir's turn today. Now two best friends from Louth are planning a fundraising challenge this weekend called the 50-60 challenge and it would involve rocking for 18 hours on a journey from Cork City to Skibbereen. The challenge has been undertaken to remember Ricky Barrett, a 17-year-old from Dreamer League who sadly passed away from cancer last October to find out more about the Rock for Ricky. I'm joined by Henry Vins, who joins me on uh, WhatsApp this morning. Good morning to you, Henry. Good morning. How are things? I'm very well and you're very welcome uh, to the programme. Now, we'll talk about what you and your friend Stephen are attempting uh, to do this weekend. But I suppose, firstly, talk to me a little bit about uh, Ricky. He was your girlfriend's, Aoife's younger brother, was it? 
Yeah, the younger brother of my girlfriend, Aoife. And what was he like? Oh, he was one of the best people I, I got to know. I only got to know him for a short time, but one of the best people I came across, I have to say. And he battled hard against cancer, didn't he? Oh, he did for, for six years. He battled hard. Yeah, so it's uh, so it's and he I know his real passions were were farming and he had a love of tractors. Oh, he was a he was an absolute family man and tractors were a big part of his life, including his own very tractor. He had a Fiat seventy ninety, and he called it precious. <laughs> and that was his pride and joy, was it? Oh, that was his, his absolute favorite tractor and his pride and joy. Okay, so tell me about this uh, 50-60 challenge that you're up to uh, this weekend. Yeah, so our plan is to rock 50 miles while carrying 60 pounds. And for anyone that doesn't know what rocking is, it's just we're walking while carrying weight. So the walk is 50 miles. Yeah, it's 50 miles, 80 kilometres. And then you're carrying you you'll carry on your back in in a rucksack. I take it that's where the ruck comes from, is it? Yeah, it'll be a rucksack, the big um, you know the rucksacks for hiking. Yeah, we'll be carrying them at sixty pounds of weight. I have you been in training for this, Henry? Yes, we've been training for sixteen weeks. So pretty much after Christmas, we started training. Uh, my friend came up with the uh, training plan for us. It was a 16-week training plan. And have you ever done anything like this before? No, nothing like this. I've done uh, marathons in the past, but <clears throat> nothing like this. And 60, 50 miles is the equivalent of nearly two marathons. It is to... Nearly two two marathons, yeah. Yeah, well done, well done. So you're you. What, so talk me through the plan. When, when do you start? I know you're leaving from the viaduct, um, just on the outskirts of Cork City. No, actually, we changed that location because we just wanted to get the distance in. Because we, our plan is to finish in Skibbereen. Okay. So we had to push the start line back to Dunstores, Bishopstown. It'll be the car park of the Dunstores there. And when will you head out? We plan to be starting at 11 o'clock on Friday evening. Okay. And then walk through the night? Yes, we'll be walking all night. And did I read somewhere you reckon 18 hours to do it? Yeah, we've estimated about 18 and a half hours. So we hopefully plan to be done at around half six um, Saturday evening in Skibbereen. Well, you'll be exhausted arriving into Skibbereen, I'm assuming. Oh, I'm sure we'll be very exhausted. <laughs> will you have a support team with you, Henry? We will, yeah. We, we'll have a car behind us and in front of us the whole way along, which will include my girlfriend, Aoife, and our family. Just uh, for safety and someone to carry all the supplies with us as we do our challenge. And outside of obviously remembering, uh, Ricky, this is all about uh, raising money at the same time. Oh, yeah, it's in, it's in memory of Ricky, but we're also doing it to raise money for Avian Spink Tie, which is a charity that helped 
the Bard family by Ricky Valwood cancer. Yeah, and Avian's Pink Tie, they it's for for children going through cancer, it's to support them and their families, isn't it? It's a it's a wonderful charity. Yeah, they help uh, families with that have kids with cancer, like giving financial support and stuff like that, because it's it's not cheap, like traveling to get treatment up to Crum and Hospital. Okay, and how can people um, c- donate, Henry? Uh, we have a GoFundMe page, so if you search us up on GoFundMe at the fifty sixty challenge, or if you find us on our socials as well, we're on Instagram and Facebook. 5060 challenge and then pages have the link that will that will lead you to the GoFundMe page and how is the fundraising going so far it's going brilliant it's much more than I ever expected we raised uh, 7200 so far that's incredible and we're hoping to raise more of course we have a few days left before the event Okay, and then you yeah, get stuck into it for your rook for uh, Ricky. Listen, we wish you luck. It's a, it's 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 certainly a massive, massive undertaking. Uh, good luck to you and uh, to Stephen. And uh, thank you for taking time out to talk to us uh, this morning. Okay, thanks for having me. Thanks for that. Bye bye. That is Henry Vins. If you're on the road uh, between Cork City and Skibbereen. Saturday into uh, Sunday, keep a lookout for for the two lads completing a journey that would cover 50 miles with £60 on their back. That is what rucking is all about. He texted in about my interview earlier on with uh, Saoirse Brown, who was talking about her young, the, the loss of her young son, Rian, and then that great song that's been written by his friend, just to get people to talk about suicide and to try to get young people to realise there's always solutions, there's always answers, and to get people to open up. We need, uh, Saoirse, I think, said quite powerfully, we need to talk more about uh, suicide. That's prompted a West Cork listener to say well done to Saoirse Brown for speaking out about her son, particularly the loving way she spoke about her son. People have to be taught the signs of suicidal thinking within themselves, says this texter, and know the signposts immediately. They know where to go when they recognise that they're having these signs within themselves. There are solutions, uh, Trish says a West Cork listener. How right you are, there are always uh, solutions and it's the, the devastation of what is left behind. I think that came across very, very strongly from Searsha this morning. Thank you for your text to 086 103 103. And talking of young people and the loss of young people, can I say well done to the Irish Times newspaper? Um, obviously, all of the newspapers are featuring the Stardust fire disaster in uh, in Artane. Uh, but today, on the front page of the Irish Times, they've actually given over nearly half of the front page in reproducing all of the photographs and all of the names of the 48 victims of the Stardust fire in, uh, in Artane. And as the Irish Times said, after now more than four decades of battling the families of the 48 now uh, dared to hope yesterday 
that this is the beginning of the end for their fight for the truth to find out what happened on that night. The long, long awaited inquests into the deaths of their young loved ones. Some of them, of course, were only children. You know, many of them were under the age of 18 at the Stardust. Um, wasn't it Valentine's night, 1981? It finally got underway yesterday. And obviously there were scenes of absolutely raw emotion and grief, you know, even now, all those years later. Over the next six months, that's how long it's going to take, the Dublin coroner, Maura Cullinan, will preside over what is the largest inquest into one of the greatest disasters that ever happened in this uh, state. And it's been held in the historic Pillar Room on the grounds of the Rotunda Hospital. And it kicked off yesterday with what they're calling pen portraits, which were read into the uh, record. And this is where each of the family members or a family member will get an opportunity to kind of paint this pen portrait to talk about their loved one and what they've decided to do they have asked the families to read them in alphabetical order so yesterday uh, the in- the inquest heard about Michael Barrett who was only 17 when he didn't come home that night he was described as an absolute pet of a person and that he was quiet and he was loyal and then Carol Bissett who was 18 she was uh, remembered uh, movingly by her mother and it was both the mothers. Gertrude was Michael's mum and Betty was Carol's mother. They both were the first to speak yesterday. And then, of course, all of the families, the survivors are the some yeah, some survivors as well, but all of the family of those that were lost had gathered nearby at the Garden of Remembrance. All of them, you probably saw them on the news last night. They were all carrying photographs of uh, their loved one and all of the families who spoke yesterday, you know, spoke of their joy and their relief. Obviously, a, a number of them are very apprehensive about what lies ahead, but they fought so far hard just to get to this stage Alison uh, Croker who was just 12 when her sister Jacqueline died in the inferno she said it's all very poignant she says her mum uh, Lucy bless her heart who's 90 now couldn't bring herself to come along yesterday she is still just so heartbreaking broken at the loss of her uh, daughter and then Morris and Phyllis McHugh they were actually in Manchester at a wedding when their only child Caroline who was 17 another child who died on that uh, day um, could imagine the phone call they would have received or they would have been contacted in some way in Manchester because we're talking about an era where we didn't have mobile phones or a lot of people didn't even have uh, a landline uh, but they spoke yesterday Yesterday, and they said that yesterday, that this day was so important to them. They said we're in disbelief that it's happening because they've been knocked back so many times. Amaris uh, McHugh. He is expected to read out he and his wife's portrait of their daughter, Caroline, their only child. And they he'll be due to do his pen portrait about his daughter on the 16th of May. It's going to take so much time. He says it'll bring back all the memories again uh, of that morning going into the morgue. But he said it's important. The families have all had the same kinds of problem with our grief over the last 40 years. And many of us not been able to. To express it. Uh, no one and of course nobody has ever 
being held accountable for the blaze and no one has ever apologised to the families. That statement in itself is just truly shocking. And Antoinette uh, Keegan, I've, I'm, in the early days I remember speaking with Antoinette Keegan and her mother. Antoinette was one of the young people who survived the fire but unfortunately her two sisters, Mary was 19 and young Martina was only 16. Neither of those uh, survived and today she said for the first time in 42 years we are finally here to be uh, heard. I mean, there's going to be such sadness over the next six months uh, as that inquest goes ahead. But hopefully at the end, some closure to the families of the victims of the Stardust. And as I say, well done to the Irish Times who've taken the time to put up all of the photographs. And if you look through the photographs to all young, young people, uh, may their souls rest in peace. Now, just can I go back to something I mentioned earlier? This was kicked off uh, this morning by Liam in West Limerick, who was on to us about his daughter who went for an NCT test and it failed due to a bulb uh, issue. Now, Liam says his daughter went straight away, got the bulb issue sorted out, went back thinking it would just be a visual retest only to discover no she'd have to book a retest at a cost of 35 euro and the mechanic said the reason for it was it'd have to go back up on the ramp again Liam felt that was very unfair for just a bulb it should have just been a visual check with no charge he didn't have an issue with her failing the NCT and not getting the initial cert but his problem was being charged for a retest just on a bulb Okay, some of your reaction to that comment and we're trying to find out is this something new uh, or not even though when you hear some of the comments I don't know if it is or not uh, Jim says OMG oh my god I've heard it all now having to put a car up on a ramp to see if the bulb is blown definitely that's a money making racket says Jim and it'll probably pay for the extra mechanics they have to employ to deal with the backlog I remember says Jim I had a problem with the focus of my lights at the NCT centre I simply went across the road to a garage got it sorted and went back over the road to the test centre and they passed it but it looks like that's no longer the case and they've obviously changed their procedures Mag says hi Trish very same thing happened to me as happened to Liam's daughter. Went for my NCT, failed the first time, so took the car away, got all the bits and bobs done, went back in, booked in for the retest, went back in. And would you believe the second time on the retest, I failed because of a bulb. I had to then book another retest. I finally got sorted. It was a bit daft having to pay for the retest for the bulb. And it seems that the bulb had been gone initially and when she'd taken it to whatever garage to get other things done, the bulb seemingly had been put in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. Anyway, Mags had to repay for a second retest. Now she said, look, if it was something to do with the brakes weren't working or there was more serious stuff, fine. Wouldn't mind having to repay for that. Uh, But she said you'd want plenty of money when you're going to bring your car along for an NCT. But to have to twice go for a retest, that really is galling, Mags. And Pat says, morning Patricia how much more of these money making rackets are we going to put up with come on people we need to rise up or we'll be walked on says uh, Pat but then here's somebody and I'm assuming is in the know by the tone of this WhatsApp from Declan in uh, Crookstown on failing the NCT and why you will be charged a retest fee for a bulb Declan says 
All bulbs are a free retest, except for a dip beam, as they need to check the light focus again. If this bulb is not fitted correctly, it can dazzle oncoming cars. And then, of course, it becomes an issue for other people. This has been the case since day one. So, yeah, and what I don't know, uh, because Liam isn't on the line, I don't know when he says his daughter failed on a bulb issue. I wonder, was it to do with the dip beams or was it? I straight away assumed the bulb was just gone, but if it's to do with the the focus of the light and the dimming of the lights, that is a different story. And I did check on the NCT website and they do say that retests that don't require the use of a test lane, they are free of charge and free retests cover minor visual Examples. Now, some of the examples that they give online include the re- replacement of a windscreen wiper or if there was something wrong with your registration plate. And we did hear somebody whose registration plates, I'm sure, were dirty and they had to go in and clean it and then bring it back. And that obviously was a visual test. It doesn't mention the replacement of a bulb, by the way, on the minor visual items. But uh, so it... So we're glad to report that the, all of the minor visual items are still in place where you don't have to pay for a retest. But if it has to go back up on the test lane again, then unfortunately you do. And I think you've got 21 days in order to book it. And it must be the retest must be done, I think, within 30 days of you failing it. 0818103103. Our lines are uh, open. And let me just go back to some of your calls and texts. I'm just making sure I got through all of those. I did. Okay, we. Oh, thank you to somebody who uh, was on when I mentioned when I was doing the piece with Maraid about the Cork Choral Festival, and I thought it was lovely to hear the primary school children singing in the background of her piece. And I mentioned that when I was in school, it was Loretta Convent Primary School. I went to I had Sister Nula, who I know has subsequently moved to Fomoy because I've interviewed her on the program a few times, and I was wondering is she still in Fomoy or not? And she was my uh, choral teacher and uh, took us uh, many occasions away to perform choirs. Somebody was on to say Sister Nula has now retired and uh, she's retired to Kilkenny. She's a She's a great loss to the teaching profession. She was just a wonderful, wonderful uh, teacher. So we wish her a very happy retirement. Anybody who knows Sister Nula, tell her please that uh, we are wishing her all the very best in her retirement. And talking of retirement, Peter McCroom was on to say he wants to wish best wishes to Fine Gael Dáil Deputy Michael Creed, who has this week announced his retirement from politics. Peter McCroom says the likes of Michael Creed will be dearly missed from Irish politics and we did we touched on this uh, yesterday we had hoped to try to get Michael onto the programme but unfortunately when we wanted to talk to him yesterday he was on a train but he has confirmed he is going to retire as a TD and it'll be obviously at the end of this Dáil term someone else is asking when is the end of this uh, Dáil term it can go to 2025 speculation that it will be next year it'll happen maybe late next year but it can go to 2025 so he'll remain in place until the Taoiseach decides to dissolve the doll and of course Michael Creed was a former agriculture uh, minister uh, but his announcement this week now he's joining a list of other Fine Gael TDs who are coming out and saying they won't contest the next election I think he's the fourth now to say they won't be 
putting their name forward and their faces up on posters. Uh, Deputy Michael Creed made the announcement at the AGM in Mill Street, which was held on Monday night. And his decision to retire, it follows the Carlo Kilkenny TD, John Paul Phelan. He's also come out and said he won't be running again. Now, John Paul Phelan has cited health issues for the reason he's not going to run. And then our neighbours across the water in Kerry, they're losing a Fianna Gael uh, TD in the form of Brendan Griffin. He says he's not going to run. And up in Donegal, of course, we've also heard that Joe McHugh has said he won't contest the next election. So that's four sitting Fianna Gael TDs who won't be uh, running. Now, Michael Creed has, and he did issue us with a statement and said he's always been very grateful to the people of Cork Northwest for electing him to Dáil Éireann. And he says in his statement, it is his firm intention to continue to work on their behalf until the end of the current Dáil term. His commitment to the Fianna Gael party and its leadership, he says, remains unchanged. Now, he did inform the Taoiseach of his decision some days before he made the announcement at the AGM on on uh, Monday and obviously he went on to wish the Fine Gael party and all of the Oireachtas colleagues all the best. He said politics by its nature requires renewal and he said it simply is time for me to uh, move on. Leo Varadkar said that Michael Creed had worked tirelessly for the people of his constituency. He said Michael was a committed minister for agriculture. He championed Irish farming and fishing and sought to protect and grow those sectors in the face of various challenges at, at the time he was Minister for Agriculture. Now, several Fine Gael sources have also said they believe that there will be further announcements made by more colleagues, particularly colleagues who have been in politics for 20 years or more. So there will be a lot of attention, I think, focused on the older TDs and the people people themselves mightn't see themselves as the older TDs but people who are there 20 years or more and I saw Kira Feelham in the examiner today she's the examiner's political correspondent she says that the Cork East TD David Stanton she says he won't confirm or deny speculation that he also plans to announce that he will not contest the next election he has said uh, nothing at, at the uh, moment Leo Varadkar has acknowledged that there are a number of TDs who have given decades of service, but he says he does believe there is a period of renewal within the party. Uh, He added that it's the nature of things when people have done a job for 20 or 30 years, they often want to move on. And he says he entirely understands that and that's the reason why they are doing so. And then in the Irish Independent uh, today, Hugh O'Connell, the deputy political editor there, he is speculating about the Fine Gael TD, Richard Bruton. Um, and wondering because Richard Bruton now when he was asked he is refusing to confirm whether he will stand in the next election and uh, Richard Bruton is the current Fine Gael Parliamentary Party chair of course he's also a former cabinet minister and he said it remains to be seen if he will stand again so he's obviously another man who may be sitting slightly on the fence to decide whether he's going to 
go or not. Now, Leo Varadkar, whenever he's asked, he's being very upbeat about it and saying, you know, these people deserve to retire. They've been there a long time. They want to break uh, and all of that. And he was quoted last week when he was asked, and this would have been before Michael Creed announced anything, before this newspaper piece was written about Richard Bruton. But when he was asked about was he in any way concerned, he said he wasn't the slightest bit concerned in the wake of party colleagues standing down at the next uh, election. But at the back of his mind, he has to be thinking of recent opinion polls. And in recent opinion polls, Fine Gael hasn't been doing that good. For example, the Sunday Times and Behaviour and Attitudes, that's the most recent poll that I could find, that had Fine Gael support standing at 15%. Now, that one for the Sunday Times is particularly low because other surveys put the support somewhere between 21 and uh, 23. So it definitely is on a little bit of a downward spiral. So you would assume with the opinion polls now, every TD will say the poll that matters is the poll on election day. But, you know, they have to think about it and they have to look at these polls and go, what are we doing and what do we need to do? So particularly people who decide safe seats, and even though can you ever say that there's a safe seat in uh, politics, but uh, some of the ones who've been there quite some time and have a good track record, I think, while Leo Varadkar publicly will be saying he doesn't have any concerns. I'd say when he goes to bed at night, I'd say he has quite a few concerns. 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. You can text, you can WhatsApp. I can see the gardening questions. Keep those coming into us, please, uh, to 0862 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. Actually, round about now, the Greater Chernobyl Cause commemoration of the Chernobyl disaster is taking place in Bishop Lucy Park on the Grand Parade because today is actually the anniversary of the Chernobyl disaster. Shambani Moore Community Development Group, they're holding an energy information night that's on tonight from 8pm to half past nine. It's on in the community centre. Information available on energy use in the home, grants, energy savings and upgrades all are uh, welcome and if you need help with reading writing spelling or numeracy or perhaps you know somebody who needs help if so can you please contact the Mallow Adult Learning Centre for more information now their phone number is 022 42642 and they're available on the top floor of the parish centre and they open Monday to Thursday half nine to half one and on a Friday they're open from half nine to twelve at thirty. And Duca's Tranakilty Heritage are issuing an open meeting to their next lecture. Their next lecture will be given by Dr. Garode Barry, a University of Galway, and it will de- deal with the reconstruction of the devastated regions of the First World War in France. It's happening tomorrow night, Thursday, half past eight. Clonakilty GAA at Pavilion. It's five euro cash, please. That's the entry fee, and it's payable on the door on the night. Court today on C103 with Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. Now we've been complaining over the last number of days, and the last couple of weeks, about the how particularly bad the weather is at the moment with the springtime, and we're not getting a lot of. 
uh, very nice warm weather for springtime. Well, according to Eddie Godkin, who's the editor of the Opinion magazine, the older generation would have called this weather Scaravine. And Eddie joins me to explain more. Uh, good afternoon to you, Eddie. Good afternoon, Patricia. Now, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. You know, cold weather at this time of the year isn't it? It it, it it's not unique. It has happened before. Oh, absolutely. And um, I first came across the term scarabine actually in Skibreen with my grandmother many many years ago. And uh, the old people, particularly in the peripheral parts of the country, where it would be more emphasis on agriculture and they're dealing out in the countryside. They were very, very conscious of, you know, the elements. And the scaravine was hated and dreaded by the older people because they looked at it as a very dangerous time for one's health and for their potatoes and whatever uh, in the fields, you know. Scaravine actually was, um, it literally means rough. That's the I, That's the translation of it. Yeah, it, it yeah. actually means it's rough. And, and it's, it's actually linked with the cuckoo. Um, but it, it refers to the last two weeks of April and the first two weeks of May when you can experience very cold, blustery, easterly wind, very cold wind, you know. And, um, uh, and that's, often, what, that's what we're having at the moment. Yeah, you, you, you're right in the middle. Yesterday was a typical day of the Scaravine. And why I put it on Facebook last night was because so many people in the last few days in Clannacilty and Bandon asked me, I was just talking about how cold the weather was, and I used to say to them that this is quite, can be quite characteristic of this time of year. It's the scaravine, and when you say scaravine, especially the younger people, they'd look at you as if you have two heads because <laughs> they don't, they never heard of it. But it's, um, it's, it's called, you know, Irish was called a scaravine, the cuckoo, which was the rough month of the cuckoo. And uh, do you, in old Irish folklore, they tell you that Scaravine was Mother Nature's payback for the cuckoo. Because the cuckoo used to create havoc when the uh, when she'd arrive from the sub-Saharan uh, desert in, in, in Africa. And whilst we welcomed the cuckoo as the first sign of spring, yeah. uh, the, cuckoo, the cuckoo used to create havoc in the nest because the cuckoo never picked its own nest. Yeah, it moves and, into, it moves and into somebody else. Ways, and, and I'm assuming the cuckoo wouldn't like the scaravine. No, absolutely not, you know. And um, now the other way, they, they, like they looked and it in different ways. Like some people said that it was Mother's Nature's way of taking care of the, the springtime plants by hardening them up, you know, mm. with hail shores and ice pellets and sometimes blustery gales. Uh, the purpose was to distribute the pollen and maybe promote plant fertilization. So they, they looked in that, but then farmers in particular dreaded long ago the, the scaravine if it came late because they would have um, planted the potatoes and with the budding stalks uh, did not fare well if the scaravine, the cold easterly wind came, you know. Yeah, so, and, the, um, and the fact that we've had days where you could say, yeah, this is definitely the scaravine, it doesn't mean it will last for four weeks, does it? No, no. not at all. No. It, like, and, and you can get, you, amazingly enough, you could get very fine weather in between it. And you could get rain and whatever, but you will get, and, and it, it, we very, very seldom go through the two weeks from the 15th of April to the 15th of May without getting some form of scaravine 
that cold easterly wind. I saw it myself actually years and years ago when I came when I um, moved down to Belly Langley on Bandon and with my plants if there was ever a plant going to die in your garden it was the last two weeks of April or the first two weeks of May around that time yeah. and it all came down to that cold easterly wind and um, but as I say a lot of people aren't aware of it because we've we've gone from a kind of a negative rural into more urban type of living. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I mean, I I was out. Yeah, it was it yesterday morning? I had to de-ice my car. And I was yeah. thinking, you know, May is just around the corner. What am I doing de-icing my car? Yeah. And that's exactly what you were talking about. It's exactly that's, that's it. the Scaravine. I, I lost a beautiful rhododendron in oh. my garden yesterday. And it was all over the frost the night before. But the old people never liked this time of year. And notwithstanding the fact that so many people now are going to the sea or right through the year, uh, they would advise everyone to stay out of the sea until the end of the Scaravine on the 15th of May. And of course, everyone has heard of the cast out of clout. Till May is out. Yeah, yeah. Now that that to me, that was something my late mother got be good for. But that's just an old wives tale, is it? Yeah. Well, the thing about it is that (laughs) they were so afraid of the Scaravine, the old people, you know, because you must remember, like, come back to my own grandmother who taught me about the, the scalavine. Scalavine was associated with bringing sickness and all kinds of ailments to people. They thought they were out of the winter. Mm. They'd gone through the whole winter. And here we were, we were getting the longer evening and a bit of sunshine. And all of a sudden, people were throwing off their jumpers and shorts and whatever. And it's at that stage, people are getting more and more sick. Uh, it's been a, there was a huge... I haven't got the statistics of this, but I guarantee it was a huge amount of sickness always at this time of year, uh, end of April, early May, because a lot of people, you know... Uh, not dressing for the weather. Not dressing for the weather, yeah, number one, yeah. and number two, going out into the weather, uh, not not properly attired yeah, for it. Yeah. But so it had, it had to do with people's human health, but it also had to do... There was a big link between the scalavine and, as I say the farming community and if you go down into the west coast of Kerry or go down west Cork in that area you would hear more and more people would talk about the Scalavine a lot more so than you'd get in the likes of East Cork or where you were or North Cork and and, and certainly uh, not in the city you wouldn't hear people talking about not in the city. Yeah, yeah. and again the younger generation wouldn't have a clue what the Scalavine meant yeah, you know yeah. and so, of course we're coming up to uh, May, the first day of May and May Eve and there's a lot of rural traditions around Maeve. Absolutely, yes. Always were. But the thing about it is that I suppose, again, the um, again the older people would have remembered these, but like like a lot of the traditions are fading away fast, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, Which in some ways is a real pity. Absolutely, yes. Like, yeah. you know, washing your... Your face and the dew. And the morning dew. And the morning dew and May Day. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Some people still do that. I know yeah. I know people still will do it, you know. But the thing about it is that <laughs> the vast majority would laugh at you. Like, you I know, <laughs> I know, I know. Younger it, people certainly, certainly would think you're, you're, you're waiting for the man with the white coat to come and take but, you away if you're yeah. heading out in the morning. But one, one interesting aside, actually, I noticed actually yesterday, uh, I went to two tips home, Bandon, I... I know quite a few, uh, as you know, non-nationals working now in, 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 in all the towns. But there was a few that made reference to it. Why has it got so cold? 
you know, back around Patrick's Day, it wasn't half as bad we thought was going to improve. Yeah. And it's a, at that stage, like telling an Irish person about the scallopine is one thing, but trying to explain to a non-national <laughs> about the scallopine, I decided the easiest thing was to put up on Facebook last night. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, have a read of that. And, <laughs> well done, well done, well done. <laughs> Listen, it's a pleasure as always. Keep yourself warm and keep that top coat on you when you're heading out for fear that you'll get a cold and a chill. I, I, I don't want to roast myself, but then you look really, look, we do the best we can. Look after yourself, Eddie. Yeah, pleasure as always. Thanks a million. That's the wonderful Eddie Gawkin, uh, editor of the Opinion magazine in Bandon. 0818-103-103. John Paul taking your calls. You can text, you can uh, WhatsApp. We are looking for your gardening questions, please, for Peter Dowdle, the Irishgardener.com. He answers your gardening questions next. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. C103 Gardening with the Mallow Home and Garden Festival May 26th to 28th at Cork Racecourse Mallow. It's too big to miss. And uh, a number of people are saying, before I go to Peter, a number of people saying that they really enjoyed listening to Eddie Goggin, editor of the uh, Opinion magazine Abandoned, talking about this scaravine, which I have to say, hands up, I haven't heard of uh, before describing the unique weather phenomenon that happens at this time of year if we get very, very cold weather. A lot of people saying that they remembered their grandparents uh, talking about it. And Christine said, shed not a clout till May is out means you don't get into your summer clothes until the May flower is out or until the month of May is uh, gone. Thank you for that, uh, Christine. Uh, Peter Dowd of the Irishgardener.com uh, joining me. Uh, good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Patricia. I, I was well I was well used to the, the expression there, cast a clout till May is out, all yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, but the, the, I and I suppose the changing of the seasons, which is what we're in the middle of. I had never heard the term Scaravine either, so it was very interesting. All right. No, and it's it's very much to do with rural uh, areas where farmers were dependent on not getting a hard frost or not getting, you know, hail showers. And seemingly the Scaravine can happen from the 15th of April until the 15th of May. And there was a generation of farmers who dreaded this time of year. And, and we can get, we can get wonderful weather at this time of year or we can get bitterly cold weather like I was saying I was out de-icing my car yesterday morning I'd be too and yeah. on Sunday I, I was I was uh, feeling the sun on my back I was actually feeling warm on my back on Sunday and then yeah like you I was de-icing my car yesterday yeah yeah okay and people are asking about that about the frost is it affecting has it done any damage in the garden this week well it may have it may have and um it's superficial damage. So in other words, if you, it won't have done anything to your shrubs, any hardy shrubs or hardy perennials or spring bulbs like your tulips and daffodils, anything like that, they're all perfect. And if there's a bit of new growth, perhaps I suspect in a, in a week or two's time, we'll see pictures coming in with black on Grislinia and things like that. That's just a bit of superficial frost damage and it'll grow through it. However, if you had planted out little seedlings like veg seedlings or little bedding plant seedlings or anything like that, um, even unfortunately maybe newly sown grass or, or wildflower seed that may be damaged by the by it as well and unfortunately I was I was I had put up a post on Facebook the other day last week sometime on, on the Irish Gardener 
can't remember what it was apropos about, but um, somebody commented on the fact they were giving out about, about, I think it was supermarkets selling bedding plants, summer bedding plants, and there was no advice, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, I was just making the point, it's far too early. I wouldn't dream of planting out summer bedding until the start of May at the earliest. And even then I would harden them off. So I put them out bit by bit. But unfortunately, if they're available in supermarkets and, and even in garden centers, it's kind of a bit unfair on those people those who don't know a bit about gardening, they might think if they're available, then it's time to plant them out. It's not. It's far too early because a frost now on top of bedding plants uh, w- would kill them. So, yeah, yeah you, you, would, you would need to be careful. The scaravine can happen up to the 15th of May. So bear that bear that in mind. OK, let's get straight into uh, other questions. Geraldine has a cherry blossom tree. She reckons it's about 17 or 18 years old. It's 15 feet high. But for some reason, it isn't in flower now and it hasn't flowered for the last two years. What could be going wrong and what does she need to do? Because I'm assuming from that text, it has flowered in the past, but just not for the last two years. It sounds like it, yeah. Um, I'm at a bit of a loss when it's a mature tree like that and it's not flowering, I suppose. Uh, it is possible if it was just one year I would say it's very possible that it's just taking a year out because a lot of time mature trees and shrubs just do that particularly if they flowered very well or very profusely one year then they can just take a year out it's not unheard of for them to take two years out and I suppose it's probably the most likely answer when it's that mature because feeding it or suggesting feeding it with something high in potassium it isn't, wouldn't be the first thing that I jump to here because the root system is so established in the soil. It's you know feeding is going to make little or no difference. So I kind of would say do nothing at all and leave nature take its course. Perhaps give it a bit of a light prune during the summer, which might promote more flowering buds for next spring. But being honest with you, I would hope, provided nothing has changed around it uh, in terms of there wasn't soil moved or fresh soil put in or anything. I would say just hopefully that the, the, I know it's a bit of a vague answer, but I, I, w- I would say that it's just taking a bit of time out and it should flower again next year. Oh, yeah, because I'm assuming that they're, they're, it's still looking healthy. It's just it hasn't got any blossom uh, on it. As we often say on this lot, patience, gardening, a lot of gardening uh, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, is yeah, about yeah, patience. Yeah. And, and then Sheila has a what she described as a yellow flowering magnolia tree. It's about three <coughs> years in the ground, but she now thinks that she's planted it in an area that it's too shady and she's thinking she should move it. When is the best time to move it? Well, I wonder, is she not getting any flowers? Is that why she's thinking it's too shady? And if that's the case, I would say I'm afraid with magnolias, it's, it is definitely that word patience. Again, some magnolias could be 15 years before they flower. In fact, the oldest recorded wait for flower is up in Kilmacurra in, in County Wicklow. I think they were waiting 37 years before <laughs> flower. So I'm afraid it might just be that. It won't be that long. But uh, uh, because they do like quite a bit of shade, magnolias. So don't be in a rush to move it if that's the reason or if that's what you think. Um, however if it's flowering but you just think the area is too shaded and you want to move it uh, wait till the winter so kind of November, December, January would be the time to move it And as I think every week since you've come back on so many questions in about moss on lawns I don't think I know we normally get them every year but I don't think we've ever got as many as we're (laughs) getting this time including one to say I cut my lawn on Monday can't get over how much moss and weeds are in the lawn I bought a bag of feed and weed will it kill off the weeds and uh, the moss and uh, Jim and Bally De Hob any suggestions please so much moss on my lawn it's a big lawn an eighth of an acre and Jim inclined Kilty says just inspected the lawn and it's full of moss after the winter that's just some of the ones coming in about moss talk to us about moss on the lawns 
There's, I was having this conversation with a neighbour of mine the other day, actually, and he has a lot of moss in his lawn, and he just, you know, he, he had kind of, when he saw how big a job, he started tackling it, when he saw how big a job was going to be, he just stopped, and he was asking me my advice. And what I would say about moss in the lawn is, is and I don't want people to turn off the radios when they when they hear this, but a lot of this might have to, might necessitate a recalibration in, in our own perceptions of what we want and what we like, because uh, moss is you know provide, unless you want the putting green it looks green it looks like a lawn you know do we need to do much right can we just recalibrate our, our perception of what's beautiful in terms of weeds and in terms of, of moss so that's the first thing I'd say to you if you if that's not going to happen and if you if you do want to get rid of the moss your best control of all is cultural control which is scarifying which is where you go at it with like a mechanical rake now you can do it by hand but believe me it's backbreaking. so you can rent scarifying machines or get somebody in to do it for you but that is the best control of all on moss, okay? Now, I, when I heard somebody there saying weed and feed, I, I was flinching because weed and feed, it, it, it's, it's chemical companies marketing and it's, it's anybody who's familiar with me and, on radio or on TV or in the newspaper will know that I'm always giving out about weed and feeds because you're pouring, pouring nasty chemicals onto a big area of lawn and there's a lot of insect life and, and soil microbes and fungi and beneficial bacteria underneath the grass. And you're, it's like blanket bombing. You're, you're putting on weed killer and, and chemical fertilizer all over the garden. For what purpose? It, 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 may, it most likely won't control any problematic weeds. But equally, those weeds, as we call them, are very, very important plants in terms of the tapestry. So we really, really need to be to, to wake up to this and stop using weed and feed products on the lawn because it's, you know, it's gone beyond being nice about this and thinking about stopping. We have to stop using chemicals in the garden. It's just as simple as that. I mean, if we want a future, we have to stop. So weed and feed would not be my 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 way of doing it. I'm afraid it's going out maybe with a hand troll and removing them. And the, the best control for weeds in a lawn is healthy grass. So do look at maybe using something like the Irish product, the Lawn Gold, which works on, you know, increasing the alkalinity of the soil, which is lime content of the soil, if you like, which is perfect conditions for grass growth, but not for moss growth. So look at either using garden lime or something like lawn gold, which will give good, healthy grass, but not moss. Um, and as I say, if you can at all, learn to love the moss and the weeds. That's it. That's it. OK, Helen has sent in a picture. We just didn't get a chance to send it on to you. It's of palm trees. She said, I've over 50 of them. I'm looking at the picture. It looks like they are in like a hedge growing all the way along and acting as a hedge. About 10 of them together have ended up like this. And the photograph she sent on, uh, they almost look dead. They're burnt brown from the bottom up. It's like they're dying off from the bottom up. Top part looks very green, but the lower down bit is scorched and dead looking. I wonder, is it is it progress, getting progressively worse or did it just happen overnight? You know, like, so the first thing that you'd ask in that situation is, was there an environmental reason? In other words, were we spraying weed killer near it that might have drifted onto it or something? Or or was there an oil spill or something? But I, I assume that you would have told us that if that was the case. So you got to assume that that's not the case. Well, that's the first thing. And if that is the case, unfortunately, they're, they're not going to recover. And, and in fact, unfortunately, even with the, the, the second more likely scenario, they're not going to recover either, I'm afraid. And that's a, it's a fungal infection um, that's got into the soil around there. And unfortunately, it will spread. So, uh, I know, I haven't seen the photograph, so I can't say for certain, but I would imagine it's a fungal infection like Phytophthora or one of these. Um, best bet might be to get a, a qualified horticulturist or a tree surgeon out to have a look at them 
before you go to the expense and hassle of, of removing them. But I'm afraid that maybe what you have to do is is take them out uh, and maybe drench the soil with copper sulfate or similar and, and look at replanting something else in there, which which, you know, may look wrong with what's on either side of it. So it might be a chance to rethink that whole area of the garden. I don't know. Yeah, and it looks um, like it's it, they're in a row, though, all the ones yeah. that are, are, are so dying and scorched. Some, something different would stick out like a sore thumb so yeah, it, yeah. it's but I wouldn't I wouldn't be in a rush to plant more of the same when there's there's a fungal or some pathogen in the soil that's wiping them out Okay Margaret says Hi Patricia uh, Hi Peter is it better to deadhead daffodils and tulips or leave them go to seed they don't go to seed do they they go back into the bowl but they do they, no, they, well they do actually go to seed do but they? we don't really grow them from seed we don't grow them from okay. seed really um, but uh, no you don't deadhead them so that you don't deadhead them like you would summer flowers in other words deadheading won't won't promote more flowers uh, with bulbs and we don't deadhead them either because you're right we, we want to let all that goodness go back into the bulb for next year so with daffodils tulips all those kind of bulbs let the foliage die off let the stems and the flower the dead flowers die off go brown and when they're brown at that stage just for cleanliness you can remove the, the, the dead foliage at that way but let them die back naturally Mary says a part of my Grisselinia hedge is burnt can I put in a new piece that is rooted and remove the burnt pieces you see it's it's this is similar now to the conifer question unfortunately it depends what's burnt so if it is something like wind or frost or, or a weed killer or oil or something like that then yes you should be fine but if it's a fungal problem that's killing the, that Grisselinia there's nothing to say it won't spread to the new one or the established ones around it so what I would say is First of all, maybe remove the one that's burnt, drench the area with copper sulfate, put in as much clean, fresh soil as you can, and, and then try filling the gap with new grisselinia. And hopefully, you cross your fingers at that point, and there's a bit of a bit of hope, but uh, hopefully it'll be okay. Okay, and do worms eat flowers? Somebody said, I've just noticed there's some worms in my pots. No, worms are our friends in, in the garden big time. That they, they, they aerate the soil and they're constantly aerating it and the worm castings that they give off are very, very beneficial to the soil. So no, they won't eat flowers. They'll eat, you know, fallen leaf litter and things on the ground, but no, they won't climb up your plant and eat the flower. No, not at okay, all. Okay, so leave the worms alone, even though I don't particularly like your, worms. Your, your uh, friends. My, yeah, your my friends. friend, yeah. I'm getting used to loving the moss and the daisies. So that's my, that's my bit. Okay, um, <laughs> have you a busy week? What's coming up this week? <laughs> Not busy yet. Well, it's it's just uh, anybody who's ordered from us online recently that the the all the, all those orders are going out at the moment. So they're Great. all going out this week, and we were, were we're busy. It's a garden design time. Everybody at this time of the year wants their garden redone. So thankfully, it's a busy time for us. Long may it continue. Okay, Peter, we'll chat next Wednesday. Thank you for that. Look forward to it, Trish. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. That is uh, Peter Dowdle, theirishgardener.com. And I want to give, if I tell my do, there was a lovely message came in when I was talking about the Choral Festival and we had that lovely piece in from Raid and we were talking about hearing the children singing and how it just gladdened my heart to hear a school choir in the background and it reminded me of my own days of the school choir with uh, Sister Nula, who was a Loretto sister who was teaching in Clonmel when I was uh, a child. Well, Breathe in Cove says, Patricia, it was lovely to hear you mention Sister Nula this morning. I've been travelling to Lourdes for many, many years with the Cloyne 
pilgrimage and I've had the absolute honour to have had Sister Nula as our musical director. What an amazing person. Many, many, many fond memories of our beloved Sister Nula. Thank you for reminding of us of what a treasure she is. Fond regards and that's from Breda in Cove. That really is lovely. Now we just need to get all the messages to Sister Nula and Kikenny to say that we were talking about her and to wish her well. Thank you Breda for taking the time out to send in that text. Okay, that's where I leave you for today. Mark Malone is in for Nick Richards again today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for texting. We are for producing. We'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 10. Until then, I'm Patricia Messenger. Very good afternoon. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.